Hello, and welcome to the Medical Humanities Podcast, the official podcast of BMJ's Medical Humanities Journal. We invite you to listen in and join the conversation from global perspectives on health, medicine, and accessibility to interviews with social justice activists, filmmakers, artists, and academics from around the world. Stay up to date with public discussions that matter to medicine and humanities because life happens at the intersections. Hello, and welcome back to the Medical Humanities Podcast. I'm Brandy Skilache, and today I'm here with Brian Sims. He's an LGBTQ activist, Pennsylvania state representative, civil rights attorney, and past president of the board of directors of Equality Pennsylvania. Sims is committed to discussing and changing policy and legal challenges facing the LGBT civil rights movement and the community at large. And we're so happy to have you with us today, Brian. Well, hello there. I'm glad to be with you guys. So I want, if we could, to start with just a little bit of an introduction to who you are and what you do. It is, it's been such a year, I know, for all of us. And I just wondered if you could say a few words about what you do as a state representative and how you're feeling right now on the other end of uh, a really strange couple of years. You know, I'm I'm grinning ear to ear as you ask this question because it's a you know it's a complicated question, right? I'm a frustrated progressive legislator in a state that is the last great gerrymandered state in the United States that just so happened to also be ground zero for the 2020 election. Mm-hmm. But we're through it, and I I actually have had this really unfamiliar sense of optimism. Uh, dare I say hope? <laughs> For you know, for a couple of of months now, and uh, it's it's not new newfound. I'll say it's just been buried for a while. Mm, mm, definitely, and I think um, I know we were all sort of riding this wave of different emotions, uh, but particularly, I think in terms of accessibility for the LGBTQ community, this was not just another election. Oh, oh no, you know we in politics we're very fond of saying this is the most important election of our time. And, you know, there is some truth in that year in and year out in that the consequences of, of good decisions and bad decisions seem to, you know, seem to be growing as, as the country grows, as we face our challenges, as we have more challenges. And so, yeah, maybe each election for at, at some point or another for people is the most important. But certainly for the LGBTQ communities, this last election was was a game changer, as it I believe it will be or it will prove to be for communities of color. Uh, certainly for for women, for first and second generation immigrants, for the the people that were on the bullseye or on the target for the, you know for the last four years, this was this was a game changer. Right, right. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit um, today, not only about the the political changes which are huge, but also the way I think um, we've seen so many accessibility issues made that much more dire. Um, by the COVID pandemic. And I feel as though one of the, I, I have talked to disabled community members who say that their issues have suddenly become writ large due to the um, COVID-19 pandemic. But I also think the LGBT community has a similar situation. And so I wonder how has the pandemic changed representation, access, um, other situations that were maybe already problematic for this community? 
the ways I suppose are almost as varied as the issues that impact us, which, you know, largely are, are, are everything, right? We, while we can easily identify policy issues that are specific to the LGBTQ communities, like non-discrimination, like anti-bullying, like bans on reparative therapy, it's, you know, it's, it's also incumbent upon all of us to recognize that issues like raising the minimum wage, for example, are a massive issue for the LGBTQ communities where we're more likely to be in single income, you know, income earning homes. Um, issues about education, you know, I, LGBTQ families are now in 99.8% of counties in the United States. And so, you know, the way I describe it is if you were somebody that was already kind of falling between the cracks or you were already fallen between the cracks, when that crack opened up and everybody else fell down too, you know, w- w- there were many people that we know and care about that were already there. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that what was, you know, as resources were getting used up and as, um, as people were, were sort of really realizing the extent of how much we would all be impacted by COVID, absolutely LGBTQ families. You know, and, and, and one of the ways that is most critical, I think, is that our ability to gather, you know, um, there is uh, a lot of, of, um, reality to the truth that the LGBT equality movement advanced in the ways that it did because we got very good at sort of creating our own family, right? That your mm-hmm. chosen family, your chosen communities, and right. we were able to come together in that way. <clears throat> and, you know, it's been particularly you know, hard on our communities to, to find ourselves quarantined as it has been on, you know, on, on, on lots of people for sure. But, but our ability to, to gather has been impacted, which was one of our greater strengths. Right. And I think too, there's a whole, a lot, mixed up in that having to do with mental health issues, um, which I know is an issue particularly for LGBTQ teens um, who are sometimes, you know, stranded in bubbles with family members who don't approve of them, uh, who, who won't let them be themselves, and now are having difficulty finding those other communities to reach out to, at least physically. We do have the online community, but again, um, there's, there's, uh, there's limits. Well, you know, youth suicide among LGBTQ youth, depending on where you are in the country, is anywhere between one and a half to three times that what it is for their straight, their heterosexual classmates. And that's a that's a staggering number. And it's in part due to the lack of resources, but it's also due to a lack of protections. You know, in so many places in the country, like where I live in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, where we don't have anti-bullying legislation, but we also don't have anti-discrimination legislation. One of the, the awful byproducts of living in a place where you aren't protected is that very often we tend to turn on ourselves. And mm-hmm. so, you know, in the LGBTQ communities, there's increased levels of, of stress and, and depression and self-harm. And all of that has been exacerbated by, by COVID-19, without question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what I want to ask, um, I'm going to basically leap off of your suggestion that we, we have a little bit of hope, we have a little bit of optimism. Um, and I want to ask, what is next for civil rights, for what kinds of things need to be done, uh, not only in your own home community in Pennsylvania, but nationwide, that makes these kinds of situations better for the LGBTQ community? Well, frankly, it's the best part of all of this, Brandy, and that is that the things that need to be done are already happening right now. I, the, I, I, I know that things are going to get better in part because of some of the moving parts that are happening right now. And chief among them is that American democracy, a representative style democracy, gets better in in a whole slew of very measurable ways. Again, this is political science, not political art. Um, in a bunch of very measurable ways, when 
are when those people who are making decisions in a representative democracy look more like the people that they represent. Right. And that's by and large not been the case in American representative democracy in in a whole slew of different ways with regard to a whole bunch of different privileges. But in the last two um, cycles, um, election cycles in, a, in mm -hmm. a, the United States, more women, more second generation immigrants, more LGBTQ people and more people of color ran for office than at any time in U.S. history. In many ways, our life experiences, our lived experiences, are the antidote to bad, myopic, you know, sort of top-down focused uh, government, if you will. And so, you know, we're already beginning to see that, that, that change. It's not just because we have elected a new president and we'll have new leadership in the Senate and, you know, just generally new leadership from, from Washington, D.C. all around. It's also that in more school boards and more town councils and more state legislatures, there are now, you know, wise Latinas and, um, and there are more, you know, LGBTQ people. And, you know, we're, we finally got a, a, a black man representing a Southern state in the United States Senate. And right. you know, those things are in the same way that microaggressions can be so damaging, um, micro successes, micro inclusions can be equally, um, um, powerful and, and, and impactful. Yeah, I agree. And I also think that um, it, it's been a long time coming. And I think, I hope that one of the things we've learned in the last couple of election cycles uh, in the United States is that local government is not to be overlooked. Um, now, of course, some of my listeners are also in the UK, and I, I think that they're learning much of the, much of the same lessons. Um, and that is, you can't wait for the ship to be steered entirely from the top. Um, and so I think these the idea of local uh, state community representation changing and people realizing that you should go ahead and vote in those elections. They're not, they're not optional, you know, um, has been a really powerful shift that I, I think I've noticed. I both agree. And I also really hope that others have noticed it as well. You know, I, one of my, my favorite ways to respond when people tell me they're overwhelmed by political ads is that's really interesting. Somebody thinks that you are very powerful and very important because in campaigns, we don't waste our money on people. We don't waste our money on messaging to people that aren't going to vote, that aren't going to get engaged, that don't care. We spend our money on people who will and can have an, an impact as, as voters, as constituents. I say this to young people all the time who feel frustrated with politics and they ask me about, you know, how do I make politics more about, you know, what what youth are interested in, which is something I agree in. And I, I, I'm, it's easy to say, listen, think of all the millions of dollars that are spent each cycle trying to explain to young people or trying to capture the vote of young people. And that millions is spent because they know that there is an untapped resource in, in youth voters who just currently feel disenfranchised. Mm -hmm. But you know, the, the reality of the matter is the more campaign material you're getting, the more information you're hearing, Frankly, it means that uh, a lot of people have spent a lot of time calculating whether or not you are, are, are worth sending this stuff to. Will it have an impact on you? And if it does, and if, and if you do care about it, uh, you know, it, there, there's a, a different approach. There, it's easier to say, hey, listen, I, I, I'm engaged. I, I, I care about these things. Now I want to do something about them. But, you know, uh, campaigns are, are a really interesting thing. The more people that participate, the better from, for most of us, not for all candidates, but certainly for most of us. And so... You know, the, those those messages, we'd rather I'd rather just have to send one. You know, when I campaign, I'd rather just I'd rather send one mailer and maybe, you know, maybe I'll send you a call. But instead, we find that, you know, it takes a lot more to get people to to, to get engaged. And maybe one of the byproducts of this last year is that it won't take so much. Yeah, I mean, I think 
part of it is people have seen movement. And of course, the, the difficulty is always that um, it's like launching a rocket. You know, It takes a lot of energy to get it into the stratosphere. I think once it's up there, it's a little easier to keep it going. And so I think sometimes people mistake the difficulty in launching change um, as though it's not movement at all, uh, when in fact it is. It's, it's just that it takes a lot of energy, a lot of people doing uh, not, you know, doing a bulk of work, but it, it should be all of us doing something. Um, and I think that that's really important. I, I want to uh, just say that you yourself are a representative who is representing a minority group. And I wonder, like, what has that been like for you to be elected in this position and to know now you are a face that people recognize and say, hey, th- he's like me? You know, that was always sort of my in- intention. And I I spent a lot of years trying to trying to help get um, out people elected to office, in part because, it, you know, uh, yes, the byproduct of having out people in office is, is better equality legislation, but it's also better understanding of who we all are. Anytime that people in, that are in the public eye who have a large platform come out, it gives another opportunity for people who otherwise don't know us to understand us. And the byproduct of understanding is acceptance and, and support, frankly. You know, I, and, and that's, that, that's a big part of this. And so you know, my state was the second largest in the United States that had never elected an openly LGBTQ person. Um, the, the, our, the, the Constitution was drafted about five blocks from where I am at. Um, I represent Benjamin Franklin's first district in the in the state house, and um, I knew that there that I I had to make sure that that when people began to pay attention to who I was as an out legislator, that um you know that there that what they saw was that something that they could do themselves. We don't really know what we want in politics anymore, but we know we don't want we don't want fake ivory tower BS people mm-hmm. candidates or issues, and so. You know, for me, that you know, as an LGBTQ person, one of the things that scares our opponents the most is our authenticity. You know, we've mm-hmm. had to fight for who we are and to accept who we are and to know who we are. And I, it was clear to me that part of what was getting elected when I won this seat was sending an authentic, proud LGBTQ person to a space where we hadn't been before. And so I had to be clear about who I was and 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 how I would how I would portray that. And, you know, and I'm, I'm glad to say it's probably easy to look at me and think, man, I could do what that guy's doing. But I, I want that. And I my life is better when more people who who are non-traditional as in just not the people we have always seen in these jobs, right. no matter who that is, whether it's nurses or teachers, whether it's line workers or, or grocery clerks. My life gets better when more people who have who have life experiences that haven't been represented in government are. Exactly. And actually, you know, I, I'm this is a. The Medical Humanities podcast is for the Medical Humanities Journal, and publishing is also a place where there's not great diversity of representation frequently in academic publishing anyway. And that's something we're also seeking to try and change. It's difficult, and it actually requires um, a conscious effort. And I think that's another thing that um, I want to ask you about, in, in, or I guess that I want to discuss with you, is that sense that change doesn't just arrive. Um, we have to want it and we have to work for it and we have to prioritize it. My favorite member of Congress, a guy named Barney Frank, used to say that if you don't have a seat at the table, you're probably on the menu. <laughs> and it's not only true, but it, it's a reminder. You know, if you don't have a seat, it's not just if you don't have a seat at the table, something things are happening without you. It's that you're you're probably there being being damaged by it. So you're not only you don't 
only have the imperative of wanting good things for you and your community, you also have the, the double-edged sword of needing to get yourself out of the crosshairs of, mm-hmm. of people coming for you. And that's a, that is, you know, it's one of the most insidious things that we do to minority communities is we make them both responsible for both rescuing themselves from whatever ism the majority is putting upon them, but also then to try to to lift themselves up at the exact in the exact same breath in the exact same vein and it's right. you know we we, we it, men do it to women white people do it to people of color uh, native born americans do it to immigrants it's it's one of those those really frustrating things about privilege that that to your point when we combat it we actually do it quite well. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that I like to remind people of is that part of the reason that diversity is so important isn't just because of the optics. It's not just because there's a customer out there or a client or a partner or a lender that wants to see themselves reflected in the businesses that they're doing business with. It's also because there are very real world competencies and strengths that develop when you grow up in worlds that are not created for you. And right. every single person on this planet, except for cisgender, white, straight men of money. And I, I'm really clear <laughs> about that money part because, you know, yeah. the, the, the economics of this are critically important. Um, everybody else has had to do slightly different things to survive in this world that was not created for them. And those right. different things are measurable. It's called, you know, social science. And we know that this, you know, the strengths that, for example, women are incredibly good problem solvers and they're good at triaging problems as a problem goes closer and closer and closer, knowing when it needs to be addressed with. First and second generation immigrants are incredibly good at understanding the, the various um, uh, goals and in, imperatives of a room, say, of 100 people. Uh, the, their empathy scores are incredibly high because you you sort of become students of the people that you're in a room with. Um, you know, those kinds of we, the, the government in the United States, when you're applying for jobs, calls it a KSA, a knowledge, skill and ability that you learn from that. Those things are are those are more of the reason that diversity should matter in 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 business and in industry than just optics because optics mm-hmm. does matter but the real things that we bring to the table and we call it cutesy things because we don't want to recognize it we call it women's intuition or black girl right. magic or trans excellence and and those are all coded ways of saying that life experience has taught you how to handle some things but then at the same time a way of kind of trying to push it off as though it's not 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 important in some ways, and it, when in fact it's critically important. Critically and of course, important. the people who don't want to see it as important are people who are invested in the cis straight white moneyed you know um, uh, way of of doing of doing work. And so it, you're right. Um, the people who don't want to invest in that are doing so because they have reasons. It's not it, again. It, I think we sometimes assume that things just happen, but it, it isn't true. There's lots of bias, and there's there's activity behind the scenes and we need to be ready for it uh as voters and and also just simply as citizens and as legislators such as such as yourself i mean that's it's exactly true and i I, you know i i every now and again someone will say to me brian you you would vote for a woman candidate just because it's a woman candidate and i say well you know to some degree that's that's partially true yeah yeah like if all things being equal because they will never be equal, or at least they haven't ever been. And it mm-hmm. means that they're, you know, and it, and it frankly, it depends on the room that I, I'm trying to send that person to. But by and right. large, I, I know the data, the, the, the math, the systematic understanding behind putting people in deliberative bodies where people like them with their, and like them measured in lots of different ways, ha, where they haven't been, it 
the byproduct of that is good decision making. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if we were going to scrap all of our institutions, every magazine, every newspaper, every journal, every business, every government institution, and rebuild them, but use the social science that we know now about how certain people have certain types of competencies, we would stock our institutions filled with women and and first and second generation immigrants and people of color. And eventually a lot of those those KSAs maybe would would go away as um, as a lot of the marginalization disappeared eventually. But right now, those are real world strengths that people bring to the table. Right. And you can't end marginalization unless you actually bring those people to the table in the, in the first place. So it's it's so important from so many different uh, different ways of looking at it. And this is, as you point out, it's an LGBTQ issue. But it's a much larger issue about bringing minorities forward and fighting for those civil rights um, because the rights are not there. I mean, yes, they're promised rights, but in many, many actual situations, we know that the two groups are not treated the same, right? We, we know this. We know this in terms of policing. We know this in terms of governance. And we can be part of the solution. And so I, I really want to thank you for coming on today. Brian, and I wonder, is there anything you'd like to just leave us with before we say goodbye to our our group today? Thank you very much for having me. This was a fun thing to do. We should try to do this again. Um, The thing that I would leave you with is that a lot of people are looking for the right person or the right people in their lives to get get behind, to rally, to support, to lift up. And what I'm hoping is that most people are also looking at the mirror from time to time and wondering if they are those people also. Every Mm -hmm. one of us has looked at people in charge, however, whatever in charge means in your life and thought, I could do that better than you. And the truth is you might be right. And Mm -hmm. there has never been a better time than right now to explore those opportunities. That's right. Thank you so much, Brian. And to our listeners, we will have a transcript also available uh, to this podcast on our blog. And we hope you will join us next time. Thank you for being part of the Medical Humanities Conversation. Thank you for listening to the Medical Humanities Podcast. Since 2020, transcripts are available for all shows on our blog. Stay in touch by reading the journal and blog online. Just follow the links in the episode description. We are also on Twitter as medhums underscore bmj.